and welcome to the Dear Bitches Smart Authors Podcast. I have to say that quietly, because I don't want iTunes to hear me. If you might have noticed from the latest entry, we have changed the name of the podcast because iTunes decided they didn't like the word bitches after like two years and refused to update the podcast, but much like a passive-aggressive heroine that won't tell you what you did wrong, they refused to say anything to me, so I had to recreate the podcast, rename it, and give it a new icon, which is blue. So if you see the blue icon, and it says new and improved DBSA romance fiction podcast, yes, that's us, DBSA standing for Dear Bitches and Smart Authors, I'd like to take a moment to thank Jane for allowing me to name something, because usually I'm not allowed to name anything, because if you let me name things, you get things like Deboaha. Sorry. So with today's podcast, I'm going to talk to Jane a little bit about the anthology she edited, Agony and Ecstasy. We're going to reminisce about old ebook stores that we used to shop at, and we're going to talk about schmoopy dialogue and werebears. The music, as usual, is from Sassy Outwater. I hope you're enjoying it. I'll have details about the artist and the track in the end of the podcast, as well as in the entry. And now, on with the renamed, new and improved podcast. <music> You don't want to talk for an hour about, um, what is it, 26, 21 different short erotic stories? We could give a short plot summary of every single one <laughs> and then and then talk about them um, at, in, at length. And, and, I mean, it could easily fill an hour, all that erotica. It's a lot of, it's a lot of penis in there. <gasps> but, hey, it has a pretty good rating on, on, uh, on Goodreads. Oh, does it? Because there was one person who had rated it before it came out and they rated it like one star. So and then they rated it one star twice. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I really, really, really didn't like it. You know, I didn't choose books just based on what I like, because I think it would have been 21 femdom stories. But um, I tried to choose a, an eclectic collection of stories so that there would be something in there for everyone. I don't know if that's the right philosophy for choosing books, but that was kind of my philosophy. Isn't there a uh, Native American? The Native American story is a captivity narrative, and it was intentionally written to be kind of a throwback um, or a, a perverse look, not a perverse, a subversive look at captivity narratives, Native Americans, and that kind of old school um, Karen Kay, uh, Cassie Edwards, yeah. Connie Mason type of book mm -hmm. that was really popular back in the eighties. Yep. So it's, uh, it's almost like a self-referential story for romance readers, right. long time romance readers. It's sort of like looking at the old, um, time travel covers and the old, uh, Native American captive co covers where you look and you think, wow, these were everywhere. 15 years ago. Do you remember when there was nothing but time travel and, and Native Americans on the covers? <laughs> like it was nothing but Penelope Neary and Constance O'Day Flannery and a bunch of very spray tanned Native American men on the covers. And that was really all I could find. I remember that very clearly thinking, I don't like either of these. Now what am I going to read? I hadn't, I hadn't discovered Harlequin yet, much to my everlasting dismay. I started reading romance um, in the mid eighties or early eighties and there were a lot of those types of books that you're talking about. I, I think a lot of them were published by Zebra. And oh, the yeah. reason I remember that is because they remember they had the gold foil heart. Or oh, not, yeah. And they had the that gold. guy with the hair and the shirt on the spine. <laughs> right. It had the foil heart. And the two things I looked for, and we talk about um, 
branding and how publishers say they can't brand. But when I was a new romance reader, I looked for the penguin or the, the kangaroo. Yep. And I looked for the foil heart because yep. those two things meant to me that those were actual romances. Um, there was a lot more mass markets printed back then that weren't romance that were kind of like a um, love stories, maybe uh, without the happy ever after. They, they were the Judith Krantz type novels and you just never knew what you were going to get into. Um, and so those kind of things were a signal. Mm-hmm. They were, and you could easily tell if the cover art wasn't a clue, there were at least two insignias on every zebra. There was either the, the little square in the top corner or the foil heart, and then there was that guy with the hair and the shirt open on the spine. Right, and you know, way back when, um, 20 years ago, God, it just seems like- We're so old. I know. We're we so old. The um, pocket, or not pocket, but- yeah, that, the kangaroo is pocket. Yeah, pocket had the best authors. They had Judith McNaught. They had um, Amanda Quick, Jane Ann Krentz. They had Julie, Julie Garwood. I th I'm pretty sure that they had all these um, just top name authors, and they were turning out some great stories. I know, and I remember back at the same time. That zebra had the foil heart uh dorchester was also publishing romances and they had the cardboard inset in the middle of the book so you could join their mail club right and i remember thinking okay somewhere on either side of that cardboard there's going to be a sex scene and i used to look for it like is it going to be on the left of the cardboard or is it going to be on the right of the cardboard and i would have to guess which side of the cardboard had the nearest sex scene because you know i was a teenager i was a little prurient and curious and <laughs> hell if every time there was a sex scene just within five to ten pages of that cardboard like they inserted it there on purpose the stiffy scene is right here let me mark it with some cardstock uh i actually have never sent in a cardstock mailer have you i have not but i love finding them in old harlequin novels that i buy at the used bookstore because they always promise me like a prize or a bag or some some special gift if i join the club and it's from like 1982 and i totally want to send it in and be like where's my prize what do i get do i get a pen do i get some like chocolate what's my prize here because he says there's a prize and there's no expiration date on it there's oh. never an expiration date i want to be like can i see what's in the harlequin prize closet what happens if i send in this card we totally should send in cards. Like, oh my God. Like, like what a week. <laughs> yes, every day we just fill them out. <laughs> what do we get this week, Harlequin? And they're going to be like, oh God, it's them again. And then, well, and then we'll blog about how they're not fulfilling their promises to readers. Yes, we can, we can start getting really irate about it. That would be excellent. <sighs> and then they'll start sending us like desk supplies, like a po post-it notes and a stapler. <laughs> Were you a really early adopter of, of personal digital um, devices? I remember I had a Handspring Trio and I had a, a Cassiopeia. Oh my gosh, that thing was a brick. No, I was. We had Palm Pilots. Oh, I totally coveted the Palm. The palm I had a first palm generation five. Palm Pilot. Um, yeah, I had a Palm Pilot back in 98, 97. I had a Cassiopeia A11, which was this 
Oh God, it was so heavy. It ran on two AA batteries and I think it must have, oh no, here it is. It weighed 380 grams. That's a lot. And it was, it ran on Windows CE and I thought it was awesome. And it was like carrying a brick in my purse. Well, the Palm Pilot was actually pretty, pretty small. Yes. Um, you know what I had coveted was the Newton. Oh, the Newton was so cool. I never had one of those. I did have a handspring visor. That was I when we went to totally color. I know I had one. I had a handspring visor and a visor deluxe. And then I had the, um, Adam, Adam had the visor edge. I'll edit that part out. My, my husband had the visor edge, which was so slick because it was all metal and super thin. Ooh, I had the Palm 5. I went from the Palm Pilot to the handspring visor. Then I went back to the Palm 5 and I actually started reading books on the Palm 5. And I don't know if you remember how small that screen was. Oh, I you do. You were reading a paragraph at a time. I did the same thing. I read, I read um, Jane Austen from Project Gutenberg on my handspring visor because at the time I worked at a camp in upstate New York that was Shomer Shabbos, which meant that from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, no lights, no cooking, no electricity. Um, they were completely Sabbath observant. And I was, and I couldn't drive because that's also not something you do on the Sabbath. So I was, I was the registrar. My job was to be in the office with a computer and the copy machine. Nothing of my job could be done on that day. So I would just basically sit around and read all day. It was a great day. I, ran out of books and I couldn't go to the bookstore because that would be driving and we were in the woods. So I figured that what I would do is I would cheat and I would hide and I would leave my trio on. Cause if you leave it on and you're not actually turning it on, you know, you can sort of get around the rule. So I left it on and read Jane Austen on that tiny little screen. It was half a paragraph at a time. Cause you've seen how I read. I have to turn the text size up to like five inches tall, <laughs> like five words per screen. I read the whole friggin' book like that. God, do you remember what you read on your on your on your Palm Five? I don't, but I do remember. I think one of my very first eBooks was um, Laurel K. Hamilton's Mary Gentry book, A Kiss of Shadows. Oh my gosh! And I I remember buying Madeline Hunter as well back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, did you ever buy books from? There's this Russian site called eLibron. Did you ever buy books there online? No, I've never bought books from Russians online. That sounds like a spam. That sounds like spam. I have hot books from Russians online. I used to buy books there all the time because they were 40% off. This was before, in the days before agency pricing. Oh, really? Never would have guessed 40% off. And every time I bought a book, it was like, Am I gonna get this book? It was like a crapshoot. I, I like um, contested the charges a couple times because I never got the book after I ordered it. They had like no customer service. Um, the books were just listed by title, so I would be buying by title. Are you sure you weren't buying pirated books? <laughs> I don't believe that I was. They were DRM'd. Oh, then they were extra special pirated books then. <laughs> God, I hope not. Oh my gosh, you're buying books from the Russians. <laughs> That's hilarious. At some point, the company um, stopped uh, selling books, but they didn't like actually tell you they had stopped selling books. It just like you'd go over there and you try to buy and it would be like this recursive screen telling you to click the buy button. 
<laughs> bye. 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 We're trying to say goodbye. Don't you understand? Bye. 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 <laughs> but, you know, back then when I was buying from Elibron, it was like Elibron and then came fiction wise. So yep. it wasn't like there were a lot of options out there. No, all the things books. I got, all the things I got were from Gutenberg because I, I was in the woods on a really bad connection. I think we had dial up. I could barely get the Gutenbergs. <laughs> there was, um, uh, you could buy direct from Simon and Schuster. I remember uh, back in the day they had discounted their um, ebooks to forty percent off or thirty five percent off or something like that. And I emailed Jane with a Y, and I'm like, "Oh my God, the books are forty percent off there!" And we went over, and I think we both bought like um, fifty books because <laughs> we were afraid the sale was going to go away. Oh my God! This was back in the day when Simon and Schuster was actually really progressive about digital books. They um, sold direct at a discount and they would sell, um, books in advance, like, um, like one month in advance, they would sell a, a digital book of an upcoming release. Wow. Yeah. Whatever happened to those days? I know. It's like the person who had all those ideas now went to work for like, I don't know, somebody else. She does. She did. It was Claire Zot, um, Claire Israel, Claire somebody, and she works for like Rosetta now or, or I don't know, somewhere else. Wow. After she left, I emailed her and I said, it's never been the same since you left. <laughs> Please go back and fix the store. I wonder what she thinks of the horror that is the, the big six digital publishing now. Do you want to talk about the Christmas readers? Yeah, let's totally podcast? do that. And I, I want to tell you, my freaking grocery store yesterday, because it was Cyber Monday, my grocery store, I order my groceries online and then I go and pick them up. Like they shop the order and then I pull around to the side of the store and they bring it out to the car. Um, I'm totally spoiled and I don't like spending five hours in the grocery store behind people who don't walk very quickly. So they had an email. They had 1,800 available of the Kindle keyboard 3G for $85. Normally it's 150, but you had to place the order that day and then you had to go to the grocery store and pick it up because it would be with your grocery order within five to 10 days. So I'm gonna go to get my groceries. <laughs> There's gonna be a Kindle in there with the milk. <laughs> I find this hilarious. But, my, but that same day, my mom emailed me and said she wanted a Kindle. And I'm like, well, $85 at the grocery store. I'll just go to ShopRite. And it got me thinking, wow, that's a brilliant way to get your digital readers to the grocery store. I'm, obviously, they're trying to offload the Kindle keyboards. There must be, yep. They must be offering them wholesale to various retailers. Yep. But $85, I'm not turning that down. No. And I was kind of bummed I couldn't buy more than one because I would have used it as a prize or given it away. But I could only one per person. So sorry, my mom gets it. So which, which which reader would you recommend for people who are interested in a digital reader as a gift for the holidays? Well, I think you can't go wrong with one of the Kindle devices and probably the touch. You know, there's a debate as to whether you should give it with the special offers or with the out the special offers. And I, I can't remember, maybe it was um, 
um, Brett Sandusky, who said it was uh, like uh, leaving the tag on if you um, gave it with the sim. <laughs> I don't think so. The special but, you offers know, I, are coupons. I, I kind of like the special offers. Get 3G with the special offers. I think that's like $139. Mm-hmm. And so that, that would be the gift that I would recommend. Well, the thing that the thing that's awesome about the Kindle for special offers is that the people who have it have told me that the coupons that you get are really good, like $20 of Amazon credit for $10 with a very specific code or really good deals on things that are pretty popular. Um, if you're the type of person who already follows the Amazon gold box deals and the things that are on sale every day, the Kindle for special offers is is a great option. and the thing I've heard about the Nook when you bring it into the store is that there are coupons that pop up in the, on the Nook in your Barnes & Noble that can get you free coffee or a free bar of chocolate. I am totally fine with commercials if I get free chocolate. You can you can show me a commercial for anything. If you want to show me five hours of really obnoxious hipsters giving each other Lexuses for Christmas, I will watch that if you give me chocolate. Well, you can actually get those coupons through your Nook app on your iPhone really? or Android phone. You can tell yes. how much I use the Nook. What about the Kindle Fire? I enjoy the Kindle Fire because it's a kind of a larger, um, like, iPhone. Mm-hmm. But I think that the Android operating system, I just don't like it as much as the uh, Apple operating system. I think that the Apple operating system is so much more smooth. I actually find it easier to type on my iPhone than I do on the Kindle Fire, as you can see by the oh, emails yes. that I've sent you. <laughs> I have definitely notice a difference typing on the fire is not as responsive it's the one thing i've really enjoyed about the fire is i've um, begun to use this reading app called mentano montano oh you told me about this and it is a really fabulous application i i wish it would be ported over to the um apple operating system but it has so many features i love how you can organize your books in it, it has some predefined organization tools like books you've read, books you've recently added. Um, you can look at all of your annotations in one big stream, or you can combine annotations and email themselves to you yourself. There's uh, features like swiping down brings up a context menu, swiping up brings up a different one. Swiping down the left side increases and decreases the brightness of the screen. Um, it, it's just, I really love it. Wow. And is it just for the fire or is it a, is it a Android app in general? It's an Android app in general. Um, I had to download the free version, which is, I guess, just the same as the paid version only has tiny little ads in it. Amazon is not allowing you to access and download the reading apps that are in the Amazon app store. So I actually went, I was at Amazon and I saw this, the Mantano app and I bought it and then I couldn't get it onto my fire. (laughs) You can buy a, you can buy a version and download it to your computer from slide slide slide.me. Right. But since I'd already paid for it, I didn't want to pay for it again. So I'm just using the free version. Huh. I just found it in the market. It's seven fifty with the paid yeah. version. What do you it's, get with the pay version versus the unpaid version? No ads. That's it? That's right. supposed to be some big ass ads. 
but I think it's under the under the same philosophy as the Eldico app in that you pay because you want to support the developers and and you like the app so much. I mean, I I feel good about that. I would have paid more for it. I just think it's such a great reading app. Does it connect to uh, Dropbox? It does. It connects to Dropbox. It connects to the uh, cal cal caliber catalogs that you've created. <laughs> It will actually search your Android and find all of the books that it can read, everything with an EPUB or PDF extension. Wow. And you can import them that way. Um, you can actually highlight, annotate uh, PDFs from within the Mantano app. Uh, you can draw. I mean, you can use handwriting as your notes instead of just typing them. That is pretty cool. I read Truth Shot by Joyce Lamb, which comes out December 6th. It was the first book I've ever read by her. Joyce Lamb, the reviewer for uh, USA Today? Right. And it's a psychic book, and usually I don't like those. And in fact, I think I, I didn't pick her up when she had initially published because it did feature a psychic heroine in a contemporary romantic suspense. And you uh, like psychic heroes about or heroines about as much as you like magic spelled with a K. Right. <laughs> or vampires spelled with a Y. Yes. Vampire. Vamp vampire. <laughs> Yes, but I actually ended up enjoying this primarily because the hero is written in such a self-deprecating fashion. Oh, that's always fun. It is fun, and and I thought that the uh, that the dialogue was entertaining. The heroine is the super spy, and the hero is a reporter, and he acknowledges that you know he can he can barely uh, tie his own shoes, let alone <laughs> shoot two people in the blink of an eye as she does. Uh, my big drawback with the story is that you're told how awesome she is and you get to see how awesome she is kind of in the beginning of the book, but then she's shot and weakened both physically and psychically. And so he fumbles around and, and takes care of her for much of the book. So I would have actually enjoyed seeing more, um, scenes of her awesomeness instead of being told about how awesome she was. I started reading um, Catherine Mann's Cover Me. And one of the things that I'm finding frustrating is that it has a really interesting setup. The heroine lives in a community in the Aleutian Islands um, in Alaska that they're very remote and they're wet and they're foggy and they're kind of consistently cold or somewhat cold, you know, depending on how you define cold, it is Alaska. And what's interesting is that they are completely off the grid. Like they have one computer with internet access. They make their own food. They grow their own food in a greenhouse. They, they are a self-sustaining, contained, off-grid community that has no records. Like they don't have a post office. They have no connection to the government, state, local, or federal. They are isolated, and they work very hard to keep themselves that way. Um, and she is one of the few survival-trained guides who can get people out of the community and over the mountain back to civilization. But once you leave the community, you're not allowed to come back. And it's a little culty. 
Like it's a little, it's right on the border of self-sustaining and admirable and completely bonkers, not so cult. I read this book now that you mention it and I thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> I didn't think it was ridiculous because I, I can sort of understand that sort of desire to be disconnected and isolated and self-sustaining. That's not what I thought was ridiculous. Oh, what did you think was ridiculous? That they have this self-sustained community and they're all, and they have all these different businesses there and, but they have no contact with the outside world, but they use money as their currency. Um, there, there's just no internal consistency to their remote world. I mean, how remote were they? Everybody was coming and going all the time. <laughs> I mean, there was this one part where they said, oh, you can never leave. But she was leaving and coming back, and so were other people. Well, once they left, they couldn't come back is what the part that really tripped me. Like, wait, really? What, why? But they always like, came. Gonna, she was le- She, she did was in twice. and out of there all the time. Yes. The, the other thing I couldn't figure out is where exactly on the Aleutians they were because they're islands. It's a whole chain of islands. You don't just climb a mountain. You also got to swim because it's an island and there's water. That's how an island is. It's surrounded by the water. So I could not figure out, like, if they're climbing a mountain, where's the water? Do they have to take a boat? Because you can't row up there. It's the northern Pacific. You, you got You need, like, a big old non-isolated community boat, the kind that runs on gas and has like a radio to connect you to the Coast Guard. So I was a little confused by that. I did not get to the part that the, the problem I'm having is that they haven't gone back to the community yet. And I'm more than halfway through the book and they're still bopping around Anchorage. And she's she has the only sign of culture shock that she has after living in this self-sustained community is that she doesn't like junk food because it's too sugary and it's not like the homemade stuff she's used to. Yes. Like cars and volume and radio and the guy that, you know, this, this huge muscled guy who's a member of the military, that doesn't phase you. It's the, it's the junk food at the, the Kmart that's bugging you here. Uh, it's, well, they have regular email contact with the outside. Yes. Through a satellite, from, from, from an island that you can walk off of. I, I, I'm confused by this whole idea that she lives in isolation, but that leaving the isolation doesn't phase her at all. Like, well, that, that's why I thought the book was ridiculous. It, that's, that's what's tripping me. I'm with you. I mean, I, okay, back in 2001, I did the Avon Breast Cancer 3-Day, and this was back when it was run by Pilata Teamworks, which doesn't exist anymore. But back at the time, I thought I was just amazing that I had raised like $3,000, and I was going to walk 60 miles. And this was in 2001. It was supposed to be mid-September. But then we were attacked by terrorists, so it was delayed to October. And we were supposed to go from Bear Mountain and then walk into Manhattan. You couldn't even drive into Manhattan at that time without going through like a four-hour line. There was no way this group was going to be able to walk into Manhattan. So we had to go around and around in a circle up above Manhattan, and it was like 32 degrees at night. It was not the most pleasant experience. But what I remember very clearly is that after spending three days in a tent walking, and with other people who were walking and not using any cars, not biking, all I did all day for 60 miles over three days was walk. I mean, there was no running. You just walked and walked and walked and walked. And then you'd eat and then you'd sleep and then you'd get up and you'd walk. When I got back in the car after three days to drive home, I was completely flipped out by how fast we were going. I remember sitting in the car going, this is way too fast and I'm really freaked out and I need to close my eyes because we are going 60 miles an hour and it is flipping my shit. And that was after three days of walking. I was disoriented by a 65-mile-an-hour car after three days of walking. If she's lived in this community for years, how is how is just, you know, a traffic jam not going to completely blow her mind? 
Like, yeah, whatever, you know, hot guy, what? lots of sex. Well, when you get to the community, I mean, they have like coffee shop and a bookstore. <laughs> really? And I was waiting to get to the community. I wanted to go back and see what this place was like because it sounds so cool. And she's working. The heroine's working so hard to keep it a secret. It's like Boonesboro without Nora. <laughs> Seriously, it has everything. Have you ever been in small towns or like wastelands? They have like a gas station, a convenience store, five churches, hey, and three bars. I visited you, and I drove through many small towns on my way out to the small town I was going to. And every small town where you live has a bar and a grocery and a library. Every single one. They might have one traffic light. They may have one traffic light that blinks yellow. They have a library and a bar and maybe a grocery. And they have the come and go. They come and go. God, that's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> I love it. Okay, I have to read you a little section of the true shot. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> and now, True Shot by Joyce Lamb, performed by Jane Litt. Remember, no, if, you, if there will be the no chicken cop, references here. No, you got to say chicken. <laughs> this is, uh, well, let's see. This is about halfway through the book, and they're on the run. And they're uh, getting uh, out of the car to hopefully uh, to, to confront someone that she remembers. And he says to her, uh, Sam. And she says, maybe it's stupid, but I hope that whatever we learn and hear doesn't change. She shook her head with a soft laugh. Change what? Nothing. It's foolish to think that there's anything even to change. Huh? You mean between us, he asked, surprised and hopeful. It's been two days. His point exactly. Well, I'm your only friend right now. It's like you're Jason Bourne and I'm... I guess I'd be the, well, the resourceful girlfriend who gets killed at the beginning of the second movie. Hmm. <laughs> Not sure I care for that comparison on a couple levels. <laughs> okay. I thought that was a hilarious line. <laughs> Later on, uh, he wants to kiss her and uh, she's sleeping and he says he thinks to himself he hated his gentleman jeans with a fiery passion <laughs> that's awesome so i mean that part of the book was a lot of fun it was less fun that i didn't get to see more kiss at kick ass spy stuff but you know you can't have everything i guess so you enjoyed it psychic yeah. heroin and all yeah i'm gonna go back and try to reread her um previous two books in the series. I will say that I hated the epilogue way too schmaltzy. Remember the Jerry Seinfeld episode where the um, Jerry and his girlfriend were calling each other schmoopy? Yes. It's, it's a schmoopy epilogue. Schmoopy epilogue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. You, that, was the, that was the same problem you had with the epilogue for Head Over Heels. That it was too schmoopy. I hate schmoopy epilogues. <laughs> schmoopy epilogues. That is a perfect term because I know exactly what you mean. Yep. Totally. I, yeah. So there you go. Um, what else am I, what else am I reading? So I, I read that Catherine Mann book. Um, which is odd because you and I very rarely read the same things. I don't usually like romantic suspense. 
Yeah, that is kind of an odd choice for you. It is. I I also there's there's two kinds of romantic suspense in my in my thinking, and I don't read a lot of it because I could be talking out my ass here. But my theory is that there's the kind where you always know from the beginning you're in on who the villain is, and you may not know exactly who it is, but you know their motivations and you know what they're doing, and they 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 ruminate a lot in their own scenes. And you'll either see them talking to one of the flunkies or you'll hear their thoughts. And in this book, there's a lot of interior monologue and um, not uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking? Just sort of thinking internal narration of the of the villain. And you don't know who it is, but you know what they're doing and why they're doing it. And the reasons that this guy has for doing things are so stupid. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. And, I, and then there's the kind where you don't know who the villain is, and you're not really sure, and no one in the book knows, not even you, and then you get to the end and you're like, oh, oh, I see, I see, I see how that happened. Like, in uh, the YA that I read, read by Kate Nolan, you don't know who the villain is until the end, and then you see later that it's kind of obvious. Even with a limited cast of characters, you weren't sure who the bad guy was. But then when you find out who it is, you're like, oh, 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 crap, this is bad because you had no idea. Which is odd because usually you can figure it out because they, they, the villain will behave in some obvious manner to give himself away. But when you know what's motivating the villain from the beginning and you know what the villain wants or why they're doing what they do, not only do you know more than the characters, which puts the reader at an advantage that often doesn't work out, but if the villain's reasons for doing things are stupid, you don't really care why he's doing it because, you know, if it's a romance, he's going to get vanquished anyway, and hopefully he doesn't kill somebody you like. Well, I mean, I don't disagree with your assessment regarding romantic suspense. I like romantic suspense, um, which oh, is I, why I, I, I read the Catherine Mann book. But... <laughs> I don't mind it. What I don't like about romantic suspense is I like mysteries. What I dislike about romantic suspense is that I never know when someone's going to hurt a child to establish pathos, and that's one of my buttons. Can't read it. So I try to stay away from it because I never know when I'm going to run into a hurt child. And I, it's not like I expect everyone to um, – it's not like I expect everyone to give me a heads up, hey, hurt child here. I, I don't want to run into it, so I don't read it at all. And far too many authors in my experience rely on that technique to establish emotion and um, empathy, and it actually just inspires nausea in me, so I don't want to read it. So well, that's why I, I mean stay away. I don't disagree with you. There was a Brenda Novak book and the prologue starts out with a pretty horrific scene involving a child. And I wrote back to um, Brenda Novak and I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't read this book because of the prologue. And she's like, well, nothing really bad happens to that uh, minor. And I, and I just couldn't go back. No, it, it, uh, no, I couldn't do it. So the, but having said that, one of my favorite romantic suspense books of all time is um, Bad Girl by Michelle um, Jaffe, or Jaff, or however you pronounce her name. Is it J-A-F-F-E-E? -E? It's J-A-F-F-E, I think. Yeah. I would Jaffe. say it's Jaffe. Whatever. And um, there, there's a pretty horrific scene, a cr crime scene involving kids. Uh. but um it's just a really remarkable book um let's see what else did i read i'm looking at my kindle fire right now i read <laughs> bodyguard by jennifer ashley which was good it was a bear shifter i've kind of come around on bear shifters i used to hate them as long as they're not called wear bears i can get behind it 
What where bears is too schmoopy. Yes. Where bears. But the where bear in this book is very tender hearted. Which is the where bear book? Bodyguard by Jennifer Ashley. Didn't she write Lord Ian? Yes, she actually writes a couple different series and her voice and all of these different books are really different. I prefer her historical voice over all of them, but she's readable. That's kind of faint praise, isn't it? Um, she's readable. <laughs> it's like, yeah, she's breathing. That'll do. <laughs> Oxygenation is occurring. So that that's fine for now. So go back for a second. Tell me what you liked about Michelle Jaffe's Bad Girl. Oh, it's just a it's just a great book. It's got a lot of good suspense. There's a couple different characters in there that you think might be the um, villain and you're not sure who it is. Um, the heroine is this awesome uh, investigator and the hero is this kind of self-deprecating uh, uh, police detective. I remember one particular scene, he admits that he and his best friend uh, like to ride their put their police bike uniforms on and go biking up and down the Venetian steps just to piss off the tourists <laughs> and the Venetian um, um, uh, hotel people. Um, but there's a scene in which she comes to him uh, on her motorcycle and she's wearing her leathers and he looks at her and he thinks that she looks like a, you know, a superhero. So it sounds like it has like a sense of humor. Well, some, I mean, the, the sense of humor, the humor in the story is very mild. It's just, it's just got a great blend of romance and um, suspense. Just, uh, it was just really well done. The second book isn't as well done as the first one. And then um, she, uh, <laughs> all, every other book after I read after that kind of went downhill. In, and then I read Infatuation by Mel Schroeder, and I don't think I'm going to finish it because about at the 82% mark in my book, it gets too hideously melodramatic and ridiculous. Oh, no. So it was okay up until that point, and then I just began rolling my eyes at every other sentence. But but the world depends on our having sex right now. <laughs> The it fate of the that, world is on the end of your dick. <laughs> it, it was the hero is um, figures out that he's in love. He, he go he he's a Navy SEAL. He reports back to duty, and um, the commander's like, "You got you got to get your head in the game." And and uh, he's like, "Well, you're right." I and then he has this moment of epiphany where he realizes that he loves the woman that he left and he asked for another week off because it, he needs that week off to go back and win the girl and the commander's like okay what? I'm fully behind you i know so you know ridiculous right <laughs> i'm trying to envision imagine your average commander with some guy saying look i need an extra week off because i gotta go get this girl because like i totally love her and it's near the end of the book so you need to give me a week off otherwise there's no conflict <laughs> And that's this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. 
The music that you've been hearing is, if probably already identified, My Sharia Moore, played by Jason Hemmons on his CD, Welcome to Reality, which I believe was produced or in some way radically influenced by Sassy Outwater. You can find Sassy online at twitter.com slash sassyoutwater. Jane and I will be found on the email at sbjpodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to send us mail and tell us what we're doing differently. We have another edition ready to go, so that'll be up in about two weeks. And in the meantime, I hope you guys are having an excellent holiday season. And as always, we wish you the very best of reading.